As a mother, wife, and divorce attorney for over 15 years, experience has taught me a lot about how to deal with times of uncertainty, transition, and facing opportunities for growth. I'm happy you're joining me for this part of the journey. It is very difficult to be married to somebody who has a high conflict personality. As a divorce attorney, Abby Ewing knows how destructive high conflict personalities can be on the family relationship. She is experienced in dealing with high conflict personalities in divorce. Abby is frequently recognized by her peers. She's received awards such as Best Lawyers, Texas Super Lawyers, and D Magazine. And she's here today to share with us her insight and wisdom. Welcome, Abby. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. <laughs> Thank you for agreeing to come and talk about high conflict personalities. Oh, yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> what um, When we talk about that term, what does that mean to you? What is a high conflict personality? So for me, in my experience, um, it can mean a whole host of things, I think. Um, but the traits that you commonly see um, as a family lawyer are people with cognitive distortion, right? So these are people who they feel victimized. They have intense emotions. Um, they sometimes have an aggressive energy. Um, and they also lack insight into their own behavior. And that one can be really difficult in the context of divorce or other family law. In your experience, do you see more men or women with high conflict personalities? I think I see both. I think there are certain traits maybe that I'll see more in men than in my female client who might be a high conflict personality, but it definitely is not gender specific. <laughs> I agree with you. <laughs> I think I think it comes, um, it, it, is, it is gender neutral. I mean, yes, you definitely see certain high conflict personalities in women, and then we see high conflict personalities in men, and sometimes they partner together, and that can be especially fun yeah. <laughs> for the family lawyers who are working together. Um, what advice do you have for somebody who is maybe married to a high conflict personality and they're thinking about divorcing them? Um, so I think they need to have a plan. I think anytime, right, you're, you're going to embark on a divorce, you need to have a plan. But I think for these people who are married to high conflict personalities, they have to have maybe two plans, like a plan A and a plan B. And they need to make sure they're getting information um, before, right, they're even uttering a word about the divorce. Because I think with what happens with a lot of high conflict personalities is when they are told or they receive the papers um, and, and they understand that the divorce is going to go forward, they might hide information, they might, you know, move money from one account to the other. And so they really need to make sure they're getting all of that information before it's shredded, <laughs> before it's disappeared. Um, and then, you know, in my experience, it's always best with those, with, with people who are high conflict to kind of start here um, in terms of, I call it a plain vanilla divorce petition is the kind of divorce petition we're going to want to file, right? We're not making any, we're, we're not making any claims that are going to kind of set that person off. You can always amend. Um, we're probably not going to want to serve them with the papers. We're probably going to want to deliver them with a letter from the attorney explaining that we're going to try and keep this process amicable and that, you know, we're not out for blood. Um, and, and we're going to need to think about how it's going to be delivered because so many times people will say, I just can't sit across from the kitchen table and tell this person that I'm 
you know, I file because they're going to explode. So does it need to be in the therapist's office? Does it need to be the attorney who's the one, you know, transmitting the information? Do you need to be at the public Starbucks? Really thinking through, and then what happens in terms of the plan B, you know, really thinking through what happens if things go awry? Do I have a place to stay? Do I have some cash? Do I have credit cards in my own name? Um, because, you know, that can happen. And explaining to them, you know, hopefully we're going to stick with our plan A, the plan we might need to use our plan B. So I think it, if you can really map out early on what it's all going to look like, um, that's helpful. I think um, that's really wise. And it also is probably very counterintuitive for people. They may be thinking, oh my gosh, if I'm going to divorce my high conflict you know, spouse, I need to put all the stuff in the, that first petition is what starts the divorce, right? You're right. And why why is that not a good idea? What happens when you kind of, you know, spill it all in the original uh, pleadings? Right. Well, then just, you know, talking in terms of where we're going to start, if we start here, we're never going to come down, right? We've escalated the situation. We've kind of triggered this high conflict personalities person's, you know, um, characteristics that aren't maybe so helpful. And, you know, we're probably going to end up in court. We're going to end up with a countersuit. We're going to end up with a lot more money being spent, a lot, um, I think, a lot more, you know, discovery happening. You can always, I what I always tell people is you can always go there. We can always amend, but you can never start over. And so once you kind of, you know, start at this place, there's no going back. Um, and, and a lot of, as you know, Jennifer, a lot of high conflict personality people really thrive on that, on that, you know, adversarial process. It's like, okay, let's go. That's exactly <laughs> right. And the thing is, is that they, you know, the legal system itself is sort of designed for them. I mean, it gives right. them an audience. It gives them a forum to harass and, um, and increase the conflict. And I think it is so, mm -hmm. there's so much wisdom in um, in not going there, you know, right off the bat. Now that's different. And, and I do want to talk about this. If, if you're married to somebody who's physically abusive, um, you obviously exactly. need to have a different plan and one that, one that will help um, put a safety plan in place for you. Absolutely. Right? And, and, and you can't help it at that point. You're going to need to get your ex parte protective order or your TRO. And that's just, that person's going to need to be served. That is a different situation. Right. But if you're just dealing with your right of the mill <laughs> narcissist or Bully. whatever. <laughs> Bully, exactly. I mean, you know, it is interesting because people come in with labels all the time. How helpful do you find that um, to be with labels? I usually don't put a lot of weight into the labels. I have, you know, a lot of people will come in having already diagnosed their spouse with a particular personality disorder. Um, and so I really, you know, I try and ask about the conduct or the behavior or the specific examples, you know, of, of things that they're concerned about versus putting that person in the, you know, narcissistic box. I think that's one that I hear quite a bit is, you know, my husband or my wife is a narcissist, has the narcissist personality disorder. And, you know, he, a lot of people, including, you know, all of us, right, have traits of certain things. But I think that the, the diagnosis I generally don't pay much attention to. And and I, I agree with you. It doesn't really tell us a whole lot. And no. frankly, it doesn't it doesn't help in your legal case. Like you're no. not going in to prove that your spouse is a narcissist. Good point. Right. 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 You're going in to prove that this person is 
difficult to co-parent with. Right. And here are all the reasons why. So, you know, right. having the actual specific facts are what, and the descriptions of the behaviors are what's important, not the label or the diagnosis. I agree. And, and so, I mean, it does help to know the traits, right, that this person is exhibiting because that will help us kind of strategize about what the case might look like, whether the case is the kind of case that might be successful in a collaborative context or if this person has got the kind of personality where it might not be a okay. fit. So you just brought up the word collaborative, uh, which, <laughs> which is a process. It is right. a process where the people commit to working outside of the courtroom. Have you seen collaborative divorce be successful with high conflict personalities? Yes. I think it can be very successful. I think the difficulty is getting that person to want to engage in the process from the outset. Um, but I think that it's, it works really well. And then, and it, it, you know, it always depends on what is this person's particular, you know, trait that's problematic. So if you have somebody who maybe has narcissistic tendencies, you know, collaborative divorce is a nice place for them to be able to air all of their concerns and provide us all with, you know, all of <laughs> these great ideas for how we might divide their estate and really kind of put a lot of focus on that person that that they like and that um, they're not going to get in a courtroom. So, you know, particularly for people who maybe have that tendency, it can be a really good experience. It's, of course, great for the person who doesn't have the personality well, disorder. Well, let's talk about that because I think that that is something that's really counterintuitive for a lot of people. They think, you know, if I if I am married to somebody who's high conflict, I'm going to need the power of the court to come in and help balance things out. Right. And how do you find the balance of power dynamic can work in a collaborative divorce? Right. So sometimes I think that's true, that you have a person where the collaborative divorce process isn't going to really impose the consequences that need to be imposed on that person to get them in check. But normally, I think the great thing about the collaborative divorce process is that people who have high conflict personalities are difficult to negotiate with, right? They're kind of the all or nothing. They, um, they, they, they tend to want to push their spouse into a specific position. And so having kind of a team approach really helps shift that power imbalance, as you stated, um, so that the person who doesn't have that high conflict personality feels protected right. and empowered. And they can see, you know, the attorneys sometimes, you know, um, helping them push mm -hmm. back on the high conflict personality person, and that can feel safe for them. Um, you know, if you're representing the high conflict person, I think you really have to show the other spouse that you're willing to kind of get your client, you know, into a place where they can reasonably communicate, where they, you know, if they say something that maybe isn't true or is a distortion, that you're willing to kind of steer them back mm -hmm. to the group. And that, when I think when you are acting that way, the spouse sees that and they, go, they feel like this can work. You know, we're all working together 
So I want to come back because you mentioned the team. Yeah. And so collaborative divorce oftentimes relies on a team approach, at least right. the way we do it here in Texas. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's the mental health professional and a financial professional, as well as both sides having a lawyer. Correct. Right. Right. Um, and do you find that if you're representing either the high conflict or or the party married to the high conflict, um, that they have a, an objection to the team? Or how have you found like people usually respond to the idea of, of working with a team? So people usually, <laughs> I'm laughing because people usually, high conflict personality people, usually don't think they need a team because they can figure it all out themselves. They have already figured it all <laughs> right. out before they come in the They don't room. really need attorneys, right. a lot of them, right, think. Um, but what I try and tell those kinds of people is, well, your spouse might need them. And so maybe you, you know, are, you know, everything and um, you're, you're, you're way ahead of us, but we're going to have to catch your spouse up to where you are kind of flattering. I mean, I think sometimes you need to do that. Um, and so this is really maybe for the benefit of not you, but your spouse needs this to get to this place because your spouse can't hear you anymore. Right. Just because of that, right? You're going through a divorce. It's very difficult, I think, for them to just trust whatever the high conflict personality person is telling them. So they need this team approach. And that usually works. Yeah. And and it's true. I mean, it's not like this is you're telling them something that isn't true. I mean, okay. that is part of, I think, the genius of the collaborative process is having these other neutral professionals who are with you. It's because, you know, even you know, my client may come up with the most brilliant idea for how to divide it. It may totally make sense. But if they say it, most oftentimes the opposing party is not going to agree to it just because it was suggested. So it is something that really is helpful. That's such a good point. Because, you know, it also, they also can meet with the offline, right, with this professional and the person with the high conflict personality disorder can share their idea. Yeah. And then when the other spouse meets with the professional, you know, it's the professional's idea. And it's accepted. That happens a lot. It does. And yeah. I, I think, you know, what what we're doing is we're taking people who are very oftentimes black and white thinkers, right. all or nothing. Um and really kind of helping them benefit from a process that's really focused on problem resolution, mm-hmm. problem solving. And so, you know, think a little bit more creatively about different ideas. And especially if it's something that suits their needs, I mean, it can it can really work well. Right, I agree. Um, what do you see as one of the benefits of a collaborative divorce after the divorce is over, especially with these high conflict families? I mean, It's a great question. I personally have seen, if I'm comparing the divorces I'm doing collaboratively and the divorces that I'm doing with the traditional litigation court system, there is a lot more satisfaction with the outcome because they had a part, they had a bigger part in it. And there's just a better relationship um, with, with the spouse. When you go to a contested hearing and you're having to necessarily put on evidence, that's you know, at its core, kind of blaming the other person for, you know, something, you that is hard to come back from. And some people can't come back from that. 
crossing that line. Oh my gosh, especially when all the bad facts have been dredged up. And that's right. one of the things I think it's so painful. People often, you know, get an itch to litigate. They think if I just go in and tell my story to the court, to the judge, it'll all go my way. They do. Yes. Yes. But I always say it's kind of like a mosquito bite. When you start scratching it, what happens? Oh, I like that. Yeah. I like that. You end that's... up with a big wound. You do. <laughs> and it's really hard to heal from and that. And a scar. And usually. a scar. Right? Yeah. I agree. I completely agree with that. That um, so many high conflict personality people want their day in court and they think that it's kind of somebody wins. And that's the interesting part about what we do is there's not, you know, you're not going to get all of the assets. You're not <laughs> going to get your kids all of the time. It, right. You are having to give things up. And so there's not that kind of feeling I've seen, you know, even if you kind of whatever you're going to ask for, the court generally agrees with you. I don't usually see in anyone, including these kinds of people, this relief afterwards mm -hmm. um, and this, you know, where everything kind of feels great and they got their win and um, it's, it's not that. Well, and you and I both know as lawyers that, you know, winning in that r round one is exactly that. It's round one right. and people will come back and, and continue back. the fight and back yes. and, and it can go on for a very long time. Mm -hmm. Whereas people who have um, had a say in the outcome and have been able to decide what they want to give up, you know, in the final resolution, but also decided what's most important to them that they're able to keep usually are able to develop longer lasting um, results where they don't have to keep coming back. I think that's right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. In my experience, that's been the case. Um, and um, the other thing I think with the high conflict people in the um, litigation setting that they might not um, always realize too is rate the cost and not just emotionally, but financially. And that has an effect too on what things look like afterwards. Because if, if both of them have drained the assets fighting battle one, yeah. two, three, and four, they're also not in a great place sometimes financially when, all, when the dust settles. And that can affect things too. It can. And even for those couples, though, who have limitless, un, wait, unlimited resources, right? Yeah. I mean, and the finances aren't a controlling factor. There's still time. I mean, we all are limited in the amount of time. And how yeah. much time do you want to spend being at war, right? Right, right. Absolutely. What does that do to your quality of life? Mm -hmm. um, when you are either representing somebody who's high conflict or dealing with an opposing counsel who's high conflict <laughs> or advising no, never <laughs> <laughs> or advising your client um, who's married to somebody who's high conflict, what tips do you give them for how to communicate with a high conflict person? Mm. So I think... Um, let me start with representing the high conflict person. When I'm communicating or representing that person, I really try to be um, honest with them about the expectations. Expectation setting, I think, is really important because it's thread that kind of runs through these personalities is fear and loss of control. And so if you can kind of, you know, set expectations and sometimes reset them when things change and really stay in kind of pretty constant communication with these people. Some people say hand-holding, right? Um, I think that's helpful. Um, and it, that means being honest about the expectations and not you know, drinking the Kool-Aid, as they say, <laughs> because I think that ends up in just making things absolutely worse if, if you're not giving them honest you know, feedback. So I think it starts with that and then you know, making sure that you are setting 
clear boundaries for behavior that's not acceptable or communication that isn't acceptable. And I think that if you do that and you're kind of the voice of calm and reason with them, um, that is helpful for, again, trying to keep things down here. Um, and if you're representing the other spouse, I think sometimes you have to coach them, right? Mm -hmm. You have to, because they've been in this dynamic with this other person for so long, sometimes, that they think it's normal. And you have to sometimes coach them and help them understand, you know, this is not appropriate. And I have had a really difficult time trying to get people who have high conflict personalities to change the, the way they communicate. Yeah. I think that's that has been a losing battle for me. But if you're representing the other spouse, I think you can really encourage them to disengage and not just that sometimes is doing nothing is sometimes the best way to handle it. You know, I think there's so much wisdom in that. So when the communication comes in, and oftentimes the communication that's coming from the high conflict person is very accusatory or demeaning or critical or blaming, all of all of that stuff that yes. makes it so difficult. Um, and, you know, it can be really empowering for the person who's been on the receiving end of that to learn, number one, they don't have to respond, right? Right. And number two, to just not engage. Just because somebody is saying all these things about you doesn't make it truth. Right. And you don't have to correct the record, so to speak. That's right. Right? <laughs> because so many people think that. Well, if I don't respond, then somehow this really mean accusatory email will stand as the facts of the case. And that's <laughs> not true. I've, or if you do respond, um, something that I do with clients um, is just kind of number, you know, very brief, factual response that right. sometimes I'll number, you know, my response one, two, and three to address the actual points that I can find in this email. Um, and that can help too, just kind of redirect. Exactly. And I love, I am a big fan of Bill Eddy, who's done a lot of work and he uses that Biff response, which is that. what he says, the brief, informative, friendly, and firm. So you just keep your tone. You don't you don't acknowledge or try and um, dissuade or prove otherwise. You know, no. you just stick with you the information. Lose you lose that. You will lose. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't matter. And there is no record. So that's so funny <laughs> right. because people will say, well, for the record. And, and so where does that come from, the record? What's, I mean, the, the, rec what's the record? The record's the court's record, right? right? When we're in court and there's testimony. Um, and I guess sometimes these emails... I think their fears, these emails will come into evidence of something having happened and, you know, but the way to correct that is with other evidence, <laughs> right. At, right, at the hearing itself right. that may or may not happen. Right. 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 So, and somebody's written statement that they made up themselves, <laughs> really shouldn't even come into evidence. It but if it does, there are other ways to correct it at the time. Right. And we know it's, I mean, we, you know, the judges know this is not going to be particularly persuasive if it comes into evidence. Right. Exactly. I always think the high conflict personality kind of thrives. Some some types thrive off of conflict, and so if mm -hmm. they can get you to engage in that with them, they've sort of won. That's what they that's what they're after is engaging. It's true. You're right. Yeah. Um, and it's hard as an attorney when you are the recipient of that because you because you will be if you're right. representing a client who's high conflict, and it's some it's one of the hardest things to do is to not respond emotionally. Um, is it's upsetting whether you're married to them <laughs> or they're your client to get that kind of an email 
And the time, the times that I have been kind of emotional or defensive in my response, mm. it has not led to a good thing, a good place. With you know, they don't go, "Oh, you're right, Abby. I'm sorry." You know, that's not that's not going to happen. So as an attorney, you get defensive. <laughs> I know. I get my feelings hurt. Um, so yeah, I do sometimes. And so I have learned, um, for some reason, those emails come in the middle of the night. <laughs> yeah, they do. <laughs> when I turn my computer on, you know, in the morning, or I look at my phone and I right. get those, I just let it sit, right? And I, and I, I don't immediately react. Um, the other heart, you know, kind of in a related note, one of the hard things about these personalities is that they're difficult to talk to on the phone sometimes because they can communicate in the same way. Right. Um, and But the worst thing you can do, I think, is avoid the communication. And I think some attorneys, you know, just kind of put those people off or they delegate people who are a little more difficult to maybe a paralegal or somebody else. But that doesn't, these kinds of personalities really, I think, need to hear from the attorney. Exactly. And they need to hear from the attorney pretty quickly um, because it's like <laughs> to your mosquito bite. <laughs> it's a wound and you don't want it to yeah. fester. So you really have to make sure that even though it's it can maybe not be your favorite thing to do that morning, you're you're reaching out and you're responding. So because I, 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 I want to be clear with people because it's a little bit confusing because we just said that you don't you don't have to respond just because somebody sends you an email doesn't mean you don't have to respond. Right. Um, if you do respond, keep it brief, informative, address what needs to be addressed. Mm -hmm. What else are you, when you are responding, how, how are you, what messages are you sending in that response? So one of the things I try and do is say, let's set up a phone call because I do think it's better to do it by phone, to have some communications by phone that might be difficult than an email. Yeah. Um, but, but I'm trying to really understand through kind of all of the sometimes rant, right, mm -hmm. what the issue is. There's there's an issue in there. There's something that this person's worried about, upset about that's happened. And really just kind of find that issue and address that issue. And I leave the rest of the staff alone. I don't get, you know, involved in that. But I do want to address the issue. Um, and it's sometimes hard to find it. And it could just be that the issue is this is really stressing me out and, you know, I'm not happy with the way things are headed. It could be very, you know, kind of generalized ranting, right. but that's still an issue. It's, you know, and then and then I try and respond just very briefly. Um, you know, I'm sorry, empathize that this is how you're feeling. You know, here right. are our options. If you want to try and go to mediation, that could speed this along and just really kind of... Um, steer the ship back to the, you know, safe harbor. Well, I have found <laughs> options are really helpful. So if you can yeah. lay out, you know, what you've proposed isn't acceptable, but mm -hmm. here are some other things I've thought about. What's your, what's your, yes. what other proposals do you have? If you can get them thinking in terms of options as opposed to confrontation. You're right. And giving them some sort of tool to, yeah. well, we can, or sometimes telling them there's nothing we can do is also, this is not kind of a legal issue. Right. Right. That this is maybe some kind of other issue. Um, but that's helpful. And speaking, you were talking kind of in we terms. Mm -hmm. I like to do that as well. So what should we do? These are our options. And then when we decide something, we are deciding it together versus me kind of telling them that's not, that doesn't usually help. This is what you need to do. Right. Um, or this is how it is. 
accept it, right? right. This is n those are not helpful ways of dealing with that. And at the end of the day, I mean, I know you and I both shared this common commitment is that we want people to live their best lives. Like right. at the end of the divorce, we want them to go on and be happy, whether they're high conflict or not. Absolutely. And, you know, helping them learn to navigate some of this in a more constructive way mm -hmm. is can be really helpful to their long lasting life. Right. Yeah, you're right. And I think we have had the experiences We've seen enough now mm -hmm. that we can really give them, you know, a good idea of where the one path or another will lead, in, including at the end of litigation and then after the litigation. Um, so that can help too. With you know, I I I have gotten many emails where something's happened and it's like file a motion, right? <laughs> file a motion, address this with the judge, and then I I think it helps to really call that person because. I think it, it's difficult in an email and just say, okay, so here's the issue, right? Here are our options. But are these, any of these options really going to get you to the place that you're wanting, right? Um, I don't, you, a lot of times, if you walk them through that, okay, we can file this, there will be a hearing, this is what the court might do, they kind of go, oh, right. that's not satisfaction, that doesn't give me any satisfaction. Um, if they really understand, because they, you know, not a lot of people really understand, I think, what happens in court and what the judges are, mm. you know, inclined to do in terms of the relief. Well, and the limitations that judges exactly. have on them. So, and the I time mean, limitations. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so they're not, you're not, you don't get days to tell your story. You may get 20 minutes, depending on which court you're in. Exactly. And there are lots of limitations. Mm -hmm. um, what when when you're looking at different process options um, for a client who's come to you, how do you how do you determine whether or not collaborative might be a good option or whether you should really go more of a traditional litigation route? Um, I try and talk about collaborative usually with every consultation I have because I want people to understand that that's an option. Um, I think that you know, Personally, I'm looking to see if there is going to be a way to kind of get them to a place in collaborative where they feel like they have an equal bargaining position. Um, and sometimes it's obvious to me that I, well, not obvious, I, I doubt that we'll be able to do that um, depending on what's at issue. So if it's, obviously if it's family violence, that's not somebody, right, who's gonna be appropriate for collaborative. But, it, but even if there's, you know, a high like psychological abuse or verbal abuse that's probably not somebody who we are going to have success with right. um so i'm really trying to gauge what the issues are and what the other person's like it's difficult because you don't also you know we're getting a kind of one-sided um story and um we don't really know what this family dynamic looks like um, so I ask, try and ask a lot of questions and I also try and ask for examples mm -hmm. because I think a lot of times you'll hear, you know, this picture painted and then when you start asking for examples, you're getting a little bit more information and it's helping you. But I think collaborative works almost, I mean, almost all of the time. So I try and offer that. People get very concerned though, I think about what happens if this doesn't work right. for me. Yeah. And, they, and what does that look like? And that gives them some, 
anxiety. I, I, I understand that too. And I, I think one of the factors that I weigh when I'm visiting with um, my client is, you know, who is the other attorney? Um, right. Are they a collaborative attorney? Are they somebody that I've had uh, prior cases with? And if it's a high conflict case, I want to make sure that it's somebody where we've worked well together before. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that's sort of counterintuitive, I think, for people uh, when they're hiring divorce lawyers is they often think that their divorce lawyers should like hate each other yes. <laughs> or you know you know fight each other all the time. And um, they don't understand the real value of having lawyers who can work together. What's your experience with that? Oh, I I see that a lot. Um, And I do think, Jennifer, that it is so important who the other side hires as, as his or her lawyer in terms of the outcome, the likely outcome. And so I'm always interested in knowing that as well. Um, I mean, I think that they, I think that it's hard to understand that the benefits that come with both of the attorneys getting along. And that doesn't mean that, right, you know, they're going to go to lunch (laughs) and just kind of settle your case and not fight for the things that you think are important to, you know, but I think it's about how is it going to be presented Mm -hmm. and is it going to be presented in a way that the other side can actually understand and hear it? And you're a lot more likely to accept a message from somebody um, who is trustworthy and already has come to the you know situation having um, a reputation of trust and integrity and, and and all of that so i think i mean it's it's so helpful in any context to have that person on the other side and everyone i know including yourself who you know um who works well in collaborative cases that doesn't mean that they that they're very good in court too right right <laughs> i mean they have a lot of tools yes that they can use um, and I think people do, don't realize that. I think they do when they're sitting through a collaborative meeting or if you're in court and you're, you know, you kind of come to that realization when you witness it, when you see the benefits. Oh, they gave me an extension on something because I had a problem, you know, my pipes burst. Right. And, and that, and, and so just those little things too can, can really help. I do think that that um, professional integrity and trust that you have with your colleagues is just so, so important. And I, I know I certainly value that because this divorce is going to end and we're going to go on and have other divorces down the road. But it doesn't mean that, you know, we fold. I, and that's the thing is that we have a hard, we have a healthy respect for our roles, which are advocates. We're advocates in the divorce process. Right, right. But and- we're, we're also advocating for the, be- for the best interest of our client, which is a good resolution. Right, and we have to be able to tell our client things that they don't want to hear, and um, we have to be able to weigh the risks. And you can't really do that when you don't have somebody on the other side who you even can converse with about sharing information. Um, I was thinking this morning about how I've been the second attorney on a lot of cases dealing with high conflict personalities, and I think the reason is because the first attorney that person had maybe didn't you know, it was, I think it's called negative advocacy. They kind Mm. of just reinforce the story that the client is telling them and they're not really 
being thinking critically or giving them the real you know, not really they're not really helping them <laughs> yeah. is the problem. Yeah. Is that just telling people what we think they want to hear leaves them stuck. And exactly. You know, we really can't are in a position to be able to know what positive outcomes look like and to help shepherd mm -hmm. our clients to get the very best outcome. Right. And to be able to be honest with the other lawyer too about things is really important. And you can't necessarily do that if you don't trust who's on the other side. That's exactly right. Yeah. This has been so much fun. Thank, Thank you, you Abby, for coming and talking to me about one of our favorite subjects, eye conflict personalities. Um, we will include links to Abby's information so you can contact her um, if you or someone you know is preparing for a high conflict divorce. Thanks again. Thank you.